Good morning. My name is Chad. I am the senior pastor here at Sovereign Grace. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 26 as we've been walking through this text of the creation week. This is our second sermon on the sixth day. We certainly aren't done with what we're learning here. Even as we finish the sixth day today, we will in day seven reference day six again. And then when we get into chapter two, particularly starting at verse four and following, the entirety of chapter two is really focused in on day six. So we'll spend quite a bit more time there. So just so you're aware, we'll continue to work on this. But Genesis 1, verses 26, we'll read to the end of verse 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would hear your word by your spirit. The word of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, as he speaks to us, that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. Illumine our minds so we would understand your word. Help us to understand what it is that is revealed to us about the nature and purpose of man. Help us to grab hold of that and clear our darkened thinking. Bring the light of your revelation of the truth to our minds and renew them. We pray this in the midst of a generation and a culture, a nation that is confused as to what man is and what man is for. Help us to think rightly about these things to the glory of your name. Protect my mouth from error and the ears of these saints from error and exalt your son. In Jesus' name, amen. During my first year of seminary, I was a full-time public school teacher in Bakersfield, and Teresa and I, she was also a teacher, would commute twice a week down to Biola. We'd leave after work and commute to Biola, get there for class and be in class till about 10 p.m., and then commute home. In that same year, Teresa became pregnant with our first child, Jared. 
And as she was pregnant with him, I knew that we needed to prepare for the birth of our first child. Here comes a son. This commuting twice a week to L.A. business is not going to work out very well. So we've got to begin to prepare. In our case, we realized we needed to move. If I was going to continue in seminary, I needed a full-time job, and I needed a place to live closer to Biola. So I went to work preparing for this coming child. I went to work preparing for this coming child. That's just what a good father does. When a father knows he has a child on the way, he begins to prepare for that child before the child is even born. He knows a child is coming. And so he makes all the arrangements that he knows are good for that child. By analogy, this is what we see God doing in the creation account. Listen to how John Gill, 18th century Baptist theologian, states this. Man being the principal part of the creation, and for the sake of whom the world and all things in it were made. Did you catch that? The world and all things in it were not made for God because he had some need. They were made for man, the principal part of creation. And which, listen, the world and all things in it were made. And which being finished, he, man, is introduced into it as into a house ready prepared and furnished for him. God is powerfully, wisely, and beneficently preparing his creation for his children. He's preparing it for them. That's what I want to focus on today in the creation of man in day six. I want us to focus on how Moses brings us to the crown of creation, if you will, to the creation of man. And as we do, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact. As we look at this, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the whole creation account shows God's fatherly care for us so that we might dwell with him in glory. Listen to how John Calvin, the Protestant reformer, stated it. When the earth was filled with all good things, when the animals, birds, and fish were created, and the crops and all that grows for food for men and beasts, all being good, God then created man. So seeing that he began before our father Adam came into existence, let us call upon our God and take refuge in him whenever some scarcity presses upon us. And let us not doubt that his hand is always open to do good for us and show that he's generous toward us. Calvin actually goes on to talk about in his commentary, that's from a sermon, in his commentary about the fact that God made Adam rich before Adam was even born, endowing him with all good things. So how could we not trust his fatherly care? So in looking at the creation of man, I want to address two questions this morning in light of that. One, what is man? What is man? By that I mean, what's the nature of man? What's the essence of man? What is man? Two, what is man for? So first we're going to look at what is man in Genesis 1.26a, which by that I just mean the first half, if you will, of Genesis 1.26, and Genesis 1.27, what is man? And then what is man for in the second part of Genesis 1.26? 
and then in Genesis 1.28. It's real simple. What is man? What is man for? So let's look at those two questions this morning, starting with the first question, what is man? Look at Genesis 1.26 again. What is man? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Just stop there. So we're told, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now look at Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's first focus on Genesis 1.26. There's a kind of announcement to create man in God's image. This is different from the other things that are created. If you remember, in all the other things that are created, God just says, let there be light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let us separate the, if you will, he just says, I'm going to separate the skies above from the seas below, and it was so. In this case, he comes in and says, I'm making an announcement, sort of a kind of a deliberation about what I'm creating. I don't mean by that God's deliberating, going, hmm, what, what will he be like, and trying to figure things out. I just mean the text has intentionally slowed you down to focus you here and say there's something different about the creation of man than the creation of everything prior to it. There's a kind of announcement that's happening. There's a kind of intentional deliberation The point isn't that God sought other counselors as if anyone counsels God. We're told that in Romans 11, God has no counselors. So why the plural us comes up? Let us make man in our image. Now, there have been a number of attempted answers to this question, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I spent some time on it in the very first sermon on Genesis 1 that I did. But I believe this is likely an adumbration of the Trinity. By an adumbration of the triune nature of God, I mean a shadowing forth, a kind of picture that you're starting to get of the triune God. Now, that's fallen out of popularity in modern hermeneutics. Here's what modern critical scholars tend to say, is they say, there's no way Moses could have known about the triune nature of God. Now, I will concur that Moses did not know Um, the Trinitarian language as given by Tertullian, as creedalized, if you will, if that's a word, creedalized, as put in a creed at Nicaea, Nicaea, Constantinople, etc. I'll make that a given. But the notion that Moses had no concept of God as triune, that notion is one to which I want to ask modern scholars, how can you possibly know that? That isn't what Jesus seems to think. Jesus seems to think that Moses is fully aware of him and even writes about him. That's also what Peter seems to think. Peter says that the prophets of old, Moses being one of those prophets, actually, by the Spirit of Christ, prophesied about the coming of Christ and certainly knew he's divine. Here's how the pre-modern guys stated it, the use of us. And just so you know what I mean, pre-modern. Modern is everything sort of, if you will, enlightenment and following. I'm going to use the word enlightenment because that's what you were told happened during that period is the enlightenment. Some of us would like to refer to it as the endarkenment, but the enlightenment after, when we freed ourselves from God and knew what man really was at that point, they tended to have one position, and that was we believe in historical, grammatical, literal interpretation. You'll say, isn't that the conservative position? Actually, that starts in modern liberalism. Now, it's not that the modern liberals are 
wrong about the necessity of historical grammatical interpretation. They're right about that. No one actually has denied in history that we need to do historical grammatical interpretation. Where the moderns get it wrong is they say it's merely historical grammatical interpretation, that you read the Bible like any human book. That's where they're wrong. It's actually not merely that. It's, yes, necessary that we interpret the Bible historically and grammatically, but that's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. We also have to understand this is not merely a human book. This is divine scripture. It's given to us by God. He speaks with one voice. So we understand that we read it as a supernatural text. Here's what the pre-moderns would say, and Gill being the last sort of scholastic theologian, Gill says this, among Protestants anyway, Gill says this, there's a consultation is held among the divine persons about the formation of man, not because of any difficulty attending it, but as expressive of his honor and dignity. It being proposed he should be made not in the likeness of any of the creatures already made, but as near as could be in the likeness and image of God. So we have a slowing down of the divine persons essentially consulting with one another, if you will, about the creation of man, not because it's difficult to create man for the triune Lord, but because he's slowing us down to express the honor and dignity of creating a creature in his image and likeness. Now, a question proceeds from here. Is there a difference between the terms image and likeness? Is there a difference? I'm going to argue that image and likeness, that likeness is just explanatory of image. According to our likeness is an explanatory note on in our image. Why do I say that? First look at Genesis 5. Genesis 5 and verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Notice, he doesn't pick up this language of image here in the creation of man. He just seems to just pick up the language of likeness as if image and likeness are interchangeable. But look at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. These words seem to be qualifying one another. Look at Genesis one twenty-seven now because we're told in Genesis one twenty-six, let's make man after our image, after our likeness. Now look at Genesis one twenty-seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He drops the use of the word likeness there. The point is, is that these terms are being used together. They're being used together. To be after his image and after his likeness are essentially the same thing. But what does it mean to be image-bearing then? What does that mean? First, it means that man is not like the other animals. Hear this. So I'm going to tell you a couple of negations. The first thing you need to know about image bearing is that we're not like something. We're not like the other animals. We're not like the other animals in important ways. The image of God distinguishes man from the animal kingdom. Man is not represented as part of the animal kingdom. I realize in contemporary science, 
Man is represented as part of the animal kingdom. And that's because we are creatures and we share much with animals. We do. However, we are distinct. We're distinct in important ways. Perhaps first and foremost, we're distinct in that we are rational animals. We're rational animals. We're not the offspring of other kinds of animals. Another distinction. We're not the offspring of other kinds of animals. We did not evolve from them. You were not once an ape. That was never the case. We are directly created by God. There is a tripartite division of the animal kingdom in Scripture. Remember I told you this when we were dealing with the animals. Livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. In other words, domestic animals, wild animals, and the things that are low to the ground. So you think about reptiles or insects, etc. We see that tripartite division both in the first part of the creation day and day six, and we see that in Genesis 7 in the ark. We see that in Psalm 148.10. That's the tripartite animal kingdom, and we're not in it. Rather, we are created directly by God to be embodied souls who bear his image. Now, I want to argue first that this means we have, if you will, rational and immortal souls. Rational and immortal souls. Let me break that down a little bit. Let's start with an idea of rational rational souls. You're not like animals. You know that your dog eats and you eat. In that way, you're alike. The difference between you and your dog is your dog does not contemplate his eating. He doesn't think, what would I like for dinner tonight? He also doesn't think to himself, I'm getting kind of fat. I should cut back. Your dogs never put themselves on diets. Have you ever noticed that? Further, your dog doesn't contemplate his own existence. He does not wonder about his purpose in life. So minimally, to be created in the image of God means we're not like other animals. We are rational embodied souls. Souls which are immortal. Remember this, death is not the cessation of your soul. Death is the cessation of the activity of your body. When you die, your body ceases to have activity. But your soul is immortal. It's created by God at conception, and it's immortal. That's why Paul can say things like, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is at least a portion of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, I want to give another negation, another not. Let's talk about another not. Second, being made in God's image does not mean that God has a physical body. What is that? It does not mean that God has a physical body. God is spirit. We're told that clearly in John 4. And he does not have a body like men. If you start catechizing your children at a young age, they'll practice that. God does not have a body like men. He's spirit. I was once at a marriage retreat for my prior church, and the speakers argued that God is both male and female. Because we're created in his image, we're male and female, therefore God is male and female. No, that's not true. What it demonstrated to me, first of all, is that they just don't bother to read their Bibles. I hate to say this is why I refuse to bring in marriage experts for marriage retreats, because they seldom are people who read their Bibles. 
They give you a bunch of psychological tricks about how you might, you know, manipulate each other in fleshly ways. One of them one time gave us a green card and a red card. And when it's your time to speak, you hold your green card. And when it's your spouse's time to stop, you hold up your red card. <laughs> like, what is that? And how is that helpful? Anyway, but listen to what Deuteronomy says. I mean, it's male and female because we are Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. In other words, you didn't see a God with a body. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth, and lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you'll be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Hear what he's saying? You don't see some physical body of the shape of some creature that you can then carve into a statue and call it the image of God. You don't. He's not male nor female. He doesn't have a human body like men. Yes, human children are in the same physical image as their fathers, but that doesn't mean we take that analogy and refashion the image of God, or if you will, refashion God in the image of man. So I have a body, I'm in his image, so he must have a body. That's a bad way to do theology. We do not start with the creature and then reason to the creator being just like us. We're made in his image. Being created in God's image is necessary to accomplish our purpose. Now the Westminster Larger Catechism in question and answer 17 actually states this quite well. If you want to know when that was written, 1600s, Protestant reform folks wrote this. Listen to what they say. How did God create man? Here's the answer. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable or rational and immortal souls, made them after his own image and knowledge, righteousness and holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it and dominion over the creatures yet subject to fall. I think the Westminster Divines get this right. Our image bearing is tied to our purpose. We were made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness to be in communion with the Lord, to walk with him in obedience to his law. Further, we were given dominion over the creatures. What we are is tied to what we are for. What we are as human beings is tied to what we are for, our purpose. But before I deal with that, I want to pick up one more issue. Look at Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this isn't some kind of weird thought that does appear in the ancient Near East and even in some Talmudic kind of documents that somehow he created man originally as a male and female, sort of like almost sewn back to back, and then splits them later. 
That's odd. That's not what it's getting at here. It's talking about male and female both created in the image of God. Human beings are created by God as body and soul. God endued them with living, reasonable, immortal souls and made them after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That is true from conception. Yes, we are all corrupted in all of our faculties because of sin. That's true. But we are no less human because of that. We are born morally and spiritually bankrupt. But this is a moral perversion, not a loss of essential humanity. Therefore, a human being in the womb, please hear this, is not a potential human being. A human being in the womb is not a potential human being. That it has to be born to somehow be actual. A human being suffering from life-ending illness is not a potential human being. Somehow degraded out of being an actual human being into sort of being a potential human being so we can discard it. These are all actual human beings. We have no right to be taking their lives merely based upon their state of development, nor based upon their lack of utility to us. In the one case with unborn infants, we will take their lives based on their, if you will, state of development. That's the right that we argue for. Because they're not yet born, they're not yet human persons. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. We'll get rid of the elderly increasingly in states like Oregon and increasingly California based upon the fact that they have no utility for us. They're not useful. They just suck up money and time. Let's euthanize them. Where does that kind of judgment stop? Is there a point at which I get to determine that a human being, let's say who's already been born but is less than three months old, is not an actual human person? There is an ethicist at Princeton named Peter Singer who argues just that. Princeton University, a few months after birth, still subject to being put to death because it's so dependent. Listen, ladies, let's be really clear. A baby in your womb is not your body. This isn't really complicated biology. This is really basic biology. You have a body and soul, and the baby in your womb is not it. It's own body and soul. Failure to understand that is a failure to understand what a human even is. Can I kill a human being if they don't provide any utility to me? Can I kill them if they're just a financial drag due to being chronically ill? Can I kill them if I've decided they're a threat to my nation or my way of life? I just heard a Rutgers University professor say on video that white people are morally and spiritually corrupt and we need to take those MFers out. That sort of fascist view of the world has been tried before. All kinds of human atrocities in human history have occurred under this kind of wicked and perverse thinking. But let me move the ball a bit more in our text 
We know that both man and woman are created in the image of God. Look what he says. Male and female, he created them. And if we want to understand that in more depth, what it means, the creation of male and female in the image of God, we'll look at that in Genesis 2 in their creation. But here's what I want to focus on now. We are created as distinct biological sexes bearing the image of God. You're not born as a potential woman or man. You're born as an actual woman or an actual man. That's true down to the level of your chromosomes. I don't care what you put off or what you have sewn on your body. The fact is, right down to the chromosomal level, you're a man or you're a woman. That's just what you are. You don't get a vote on the kind of creature you are or the sex that you have. You don't get a vote on either one of those things. You have a given biological sex. The sexes are to be distinguished and not confused. You are male or female, man or woman. There are not any other choices. In spite of California and other states now adopting this notion of non-binary, which is ironic on a number of levels because we've boiled it down now to binary or non-binary, giving you still two choices. It's relentless. We can't get away from it, even in our absurdity. You're male or female, period. This whole transgenderism thing is wicked and utterly absurd, and we all know it. We all know it. And weak people, I want you to hear this, please. I don't say this condemnatory toward people struggling with this transgenderism problem. They are weak people. They are people who are confused. And lots of us are weak in a variety of ways, but they are confused. They're likely suffering from some kind of psychological disorder, and they're being encouraged to wallow in their corrupted imagination rather than seek the help they so clearly need. It's not loving. It's wicked. Sadly, we've entered an era in which man is reduced to his animal appetites. See, I just am what I desire. It's so dehumanizing. Let's be clear. You are not your bodily urges. You are not your bodily appetites. That's not what you are or who you are. You have the rational ability to obey or to deny your bodily appetites and urges. I pointed this out. I was in a huge debate in 2008. I was the co-chair of Prop 8 for the county of Kern. And you remember that proposition in 2008 was for the proposition for traditional marriage. And I was asked to participate in a debate at the Fox Theater. And it was packed out, and I participated in the debate, and I debated, it was like two or three, I don't remember, same-sex attracted men who debated me. And one of those same-sex attracted men told me that he has no choice as his desire is who he is. I don't mean he has desires that he has no choice over. That's fine. I'll make that a given. I have desires I didn't choose too. Sinful, lustful desires, don't you? I wish I didn't have them. I'd like them to die today, but I will have to die with them. (laughs) But he said because of these desires, he has no choice. It's just who he is. He then went on to argue that we see this in the animal kingdom. We see in the animal kingdom. He said this. He said, you'll see, often see a male dog acting in a same-sex attracted manner. 
And I replied, that might be true, but there's an important difference between a male dog acting in the same sex-attracted manner and a human male doing the same. I explained to him that my male dog might lack the self-control to treat my invited guests at my house a particular way, and I would expect that my same-sex-attracted friends wouldn't lack a similar self-control. We're not animals who must obey their beastly appetites. When we fail to understand this, we dehumanize people and we make them like animals. You don't have to be a Christian to know that, by the way. Even unbelievers can suppress their bodily appetites and be civilly virtuous. Civilly virtuous. However, an unbeliever can never be virtuous in the truest sense. In the sense that virtuous is a man who trusts God and obeys his law from his heart. Can't be that. But he can be a decent, civil human being. That transformation of the heart of man so he loves God and his law is a work of the Spirit of God when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believer, by the grace of God, you are able to exercise self-control and live virtuously. You don't have to obey your urges. That's why labels like gay Christian are so offensive both to the nature of man and the gospel. God created us male and female in his image, not as animals who must obey their appetites. And God saved you from bondage to sinful appetites. You are not your sinful desires. If we lose sight of this, man is dehumanized. It's dehumanizing to label somebody as their identity marker after sin or any urge. It devalues them as human beings. Man was created a particular way for a particular purpose. And to that question I want to turn, what is man for? We'll spend quite a bit more time on man in day two and what he's for. But let's look at what man is for here. Because if we lose sight of what a man is for, we devolve into a man-centered world. But the whole creation narrative is driving us to the seventh day, the Sabbath. And so I want to, though I'm going to deal with that more fully next week and in Genesis 2, I want to pick up the question here, what is man for? Look at Genesis 1.26 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now look at Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, man's purpose, man is purposed or created to rule over the creation as a kind of vice regent. What I mean by that is his rule is an administration. It's God's creation, and he belongs to God, and God is the ruler, but man, administratively, if you will, stands in God's place, having dominion over the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the animals, etc. He has dominion over that. It's what he was created for. And God blesses him. After the creation of man, the first word we see to man is God blessing him. And he blesses him, 
And he commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. There's a blessing upon man for the purpose of reproduction and for the purpose of rule. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it. Notice that. And subdue it and have dominion. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion. God made man with a purpose. I'll just get at two of them. First, man was created and blessed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's blessing is given with God's command. Why? Because God will open the womb and God will close the womb. I want to keep coming back to this because the question often comes up. I hear this argument a lot in apologetic circles. Death is necessary prior to the fall because if there had been no fall, we would have overpopulated the earth. As if God had nothing to do with reproduction. He just wound it up and sits back and watches and has no control. He's like, oh no, there's too many of them. God opens and closes the womb. God's blessing is given with that, that he will open the womb and bring the offspring. Now this assumes that Adam and Eve are given to one another as husband and wife, which we'll see that clearly in Genesis 2, that they are given to one another as husband and wife for the purpose of multiplying. We're image bearers. Think about that language. What does it mean to bear an image? Well, you all got ready this morning, I think, most likely. And when you did, most likely you looked in the mirror just to see if everything was in the right place. And as you looked in the mirror as you were getting ready, you saw your image. That mirror bore your image. It told you the truth about you. Truth you may or may not have been pleased to remember. But it told you the truth. It bore your image. What do image bearers do? They tell you the truth about the one whose image they bear. And Adam and Eve are told to, as a married couple, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers of God, so that all across the creation, God's glory is being reflected. It's being seen. God's glory is being spread throughout all creation. Listen to why God gave us marriage. We don't think enough about this because we think that God gave us marriage for the purpose of romance, right? Gave us marriage for the purpose of romance, for the purpose of self-fulfillment. That the whole thing was about the fact that I have needs, you have needs. We'll come together. I'll find the one. And we'll get married. And won't it be romantic? And if you just do the math on the one, that's a real problem. Because if you married the wrong one, then so did the other person. And then the other people all married the wrong one that they were supposed to marry, which was you. And then you just take the math on out and the whole world is married to the wrong person. Right? Just by one error there. It's nonsense. It's just crazy. Just, you know, obey God and marry who you want. Right? And if you're obeying God, you're going to make a good decision. But the purpose of it isn't just so you find your match and then you feel fulfilled. And that's what it's about. And then, then maybe someday you'll consider having children. Maybe. But that's nothing really to do with why we're married That's just something we might participate in if we sort of want to bless the world with our progeny. 
But why did God give us marriage? Listen to what Malachi says. Did he not make them one, the married couple? Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? That's a remarkable thing. My son's wedding is next month. I will stand in front of them. They will exchange vows. I will make a pronouncement. And they will go from being unmarried to being married. Think about that. By the work of the Spirit. The Spirit will bind them together. That's real. In covenantal union. Why did God do that? Here's the question. Malachi 2, verse 15. And what was the one God seeking when he brought them together? What was the one God seeking? Here's the answer. Godly offspring. Godly offspring. So God's first purpose in creating us, the first purpose of man, is that we might produce image bearers around the earth. Fill the earth with them. Second, man was created to rule over the creation as God's vice regent. We're his representative to administer what he's made and what he owns. The heavens and the earth belong to God and so do you. And we administer his rule upon the earth. We don't administer our own dominion. That's why one of the first things in a biblical financial class you start with is God owns everything, including you. So you're not really, at the end of the day, giving him anything. Like when you give to the Lord, you're like, you're just offering back something that he already gave to you. You're not even repaying him. You're not indebting him. How can you indebt a God who gave you everything that you're now offering him some of? It all belongs to him, and we rule over it. We have dominion over it as those knowing we belong to him. It all belongs to him. And so, if you will, we're managing what God has given for his glory. So look at Psalm 8. We'll just start in verse 3. One thing I want you to note about this psalm is it's, there's an inclusio. Remember I've told you about inclusios. There's the brackets at the ending and beginning of something. It's like bookends that tell you what, that sort of bring everything together. If you look at the beginning of Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then you look at the end of Psalm 8, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I just want to focus on verse 3, though. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars. By the way, God doesn't actually have fingers. We understand that, right? He didn't take out his finger and draw or multiple fingers and sort of do, right? It's just a a manner of speaking. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Listen, if you're the creator of all this, what is man that you care for him? I mean, if you guys see yourself in light of the universe, 
You realize we're like an ant, a worm, something tiny and insignificant from the perspective of the whole of God's creation. And yet God's mindful of us. He cares for us. And catch this, he's crowned us with glory and honor and given us dominion over his creation. It's remarkable. Now, I want to spend a lot more time on this, and we will spend a lot more time on this in chapter 2. Here's what I want to focus on, though. God has created the heavens and the earth as a temple for his glory. We've talked about that multiple times already. He dwells, God dwells with his creation in this cosmic temple. And he created us in his image to marry, reproduce, and spread his glory throughout his temple. We were created to administrate his rule in that cosmic temple, in his temple for his glory. And what's the proper response for all that? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here's the trouble. Did Adam and Eve respond this way? No. Did Israel respond this way? No. Do we respond this way? No. Rather, we turn in on ourselves and we press God aside. We don't glorify God. We don't administrate his rule in the creation in his creation well. Rather, we often usurp his authority and replace it with our own. Just take his authority and replace it with our own. The nation, Psalm 2 tells us, continue to rage and plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. And we're all participants in that at some point in our lives. And there are days, even as those who have been born-again believers or moments of days in which we start to participate in it once again, like a dog returning to his vomit. Thus God sent a man, born of woman, born under the law to save us. He sent a man who would understand what it means to be a true image bearer of God to honor God, to glorify God. And folks, listen, via the Great Commission, to spread, multiply image bearers across the earth who reflect the truth about God rather than a lie. Look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. And verse 5. We're going to see Psalm 8 picked up again here. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. By the way, in the context of Hebrews 2, I did this work in Hebrews already. The world to come is the world actually that the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying we're presently in. There was the world that was the original creation, and then there's the new creation which has already begun, or the world to come which will be consummated at the return of Christ, but it's already begun. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking, which is fascinating because he's going to speak of the fact that the world to come is subjected to someone. Who is it? Verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. 
What is man that you're mindful of him? Psalm 8. Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. If you look around, everything doesn't look like it's in subjection to him. But, verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you hear what he's saying there? Adam was created to be this man crowned with glory and honor, and he failed to be. We were created to be this man who were crowned with glory and honor, and we failed to be. But who was this man who was crowned with glory and honor, to whom all things are actually put in subjection under his feet, the one who honors the Lord, who is perfect in every way, holy, innocent, undefiled, tempted in every way, yet without sin? Who is that man who keeps the law? His name is Jesus Christ. He is that man, and he, notice this, tasted death for everyone. By the grace of God, he came and tasted death for everyone. Why is that necessary? Because we failed to be that man. Death is our due wage. Yet Christ was that man, and he stood in our place and tasted death for us anyway. He took the wages of sin due to us upon himself so that we might live so that we might be forgiven our sins. Look at what it says, verse 10 of Hebrews 2, about the Father. For it was fitting that he, that's the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us who are saved, should make the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. In other words, he's sanctified, consecrated to the end of saving us through his suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's the Son, Christ, he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one. Father is a better translation, by the way. It's all, are all of one, and Father is the best thing there. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You hear that? Jesus came to save us sinful men who bore a lie. Came to save us, and because he sanctifies us, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. It's a remarkable text. We've gone from being those men who deserve death and judgment to those who are saved because the man who did not deserve death and judgment, the man who was clothed, crowned with glory and honor, who kept God's law, tasted death in our place. And that same man, the man Christ Jesus, sanctifies us And so he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. And what does he do? He leads us in worship. Remember, our purpose is worship, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to dwell with him in his presence and worship him. And what does Jesus do? He goes as a forerunner into heaven and anchors us there with him behind the veil and ushers us in, and he leads the worship. I will tell of your name, Father, to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, the church, I will sing your praise. Jesus does the preaching. Jesus leads the singing as he brings us into worship. 
think of that unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, you're dead in your own sins. You will face judgment. You're in Adam, and you will die and suffer an eternal hell for your sins. Your salvation is found only in Christ. So you look to him, the man who did not sin, the one who died on the cross for your sins, who tasted death for everyone, and you're saved. Believer, if you're trusting in him, think of what God has done for you. Think of it. He not only created you, he not only created all things first to enrich you before he even created you because of his kindness. He provides for you every day. And then in the face of your sin, he sends his son to redeem you. How can we not sing his praises in the face of that? What is man? An immortal soul that's embodied an embodied soul, rational, immortal, created in true holiness, righteousness, and justice. An immortal soul who's supposed to, if you will, give himself fully to God. That's his purpose, to live for him. What have we done? We've sinned. What did he do? He sent the man who knew no sin in our place so that we might be saved and redeemed. That's the God whom we trust. That's what we believe. And as he works, he restores us to our purpose. He saves us. He restores us to our purpose. That all that we do might be for his glory and our good. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for Christ and his work on our behalf. We pray that you would help us to continue to trust in him to rest upon him, to recognize that it's because of our sin, our lawlessness, our rebelliousness that we were at enmity with you and you with us. And it's because of your grace that you sent our Lord Jesus Christ to taste death for us. May we trust him. May we rest in him. May we be thankful again and again. And may we now in Christ begin more and more to understand what we are and what our purpose is, which is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. May we do that in our vocations, whatever you've given us in these secular callings, and may we do that in our worship as we gather to lift up your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.